Right, this morning we're kicking off our new series. Um, our God, there is none like Him. And um, our approach will be a little bit different uh, this time. I'm going to send something out to the church to sort of explain uh, the rationale, the reasoning, just through working through a topical, uh, working through a topic instead of working through a book of the Bible sequentially. So I'll send something out so I can help explain that. But that's what we'll be doing. We look at the attributes and the nature of God. And um, during our guided prayer, um, uh, Kevin, uh, we prayed through Psalm 27 and, and Philippians 3, and um, Kevin mentioned that both those people, heroes of the faith, David in the Old Testament and uh, Paul in the New Testament, um, they were indifferent what they were reflecting on, but they were both in difficult circumstances. Uh, it actually says in Psalm 27 that, that David was, uh, someone was about to devour his flesh. I don't know if anybody here has had somebody about to devour your flesh this week, but he was running for his life before trying to kill him and murder and murder him. Uh, Paul is actually in the jail, although he's in jail reflecting on what his accomplishments are. He's in jail being persecuted as the church uh, goes forward. And what's um, what's amazing about that, that there are those difficult circumstances and they uh, arrive um, in the place where they think trusting God and knowing him is the most important thing. Now, I don't know about you, but when I find myself in difficult circumstances, what would you have been praying? Here's what I've been praying, probably. Lord, get me out. Get me out of jail. Lord, please, stop this. There's no mention uh, that David does trust. He says, why should I worry about fear in that passage? The Lord's a strong one with me. There was no request to get out. Maybe you're more spiritual than me. I don't know. <laughs> that would be my request. Doesn't that make sense? It's incredible, fascinating. In those difficult circumstances, they reflect and, and say, there's one thing I want. That's to know God. And I'm more excited. It's better to have Him than to have anything. So, I guess the question is, how in the world do you get to that place? Um, how do you get a place where you trust and treasure the Lord like that? In difficult circumstances, if that would be your conclusion. Now, it's the grace of God in, in, in any sense, anything working in our life. But I would argue this that, uh, from our passage this morning is that you do have to make a choice to get there. As a matter of fact, Jesus is talking to these two ladies, two friends of his, and he's telling them one made a good choice and one made a bad choice. So you do have to make a choice. Now, let me just pause there for parentheses. Um, I'm not talking about salvation, the choice of salvation. Well, we personally believe as a church about the choice of salvation. That's not one you can make, nor did I make. Um, we believe that Jesus, when he told the disciples, is that I did not, you did not choose me, I chose you. Now, that seems like a big theological thing, but here's just what the grassroots level or the ground level, what it means is this. When we think about salvation. Do you have to repent, believe? Yes. Do you have to trust Christ? Yes. And if you keep asking the question, okay, that's what I have to do, how did that happen? Well, how did that happen? Why did that happen? And we believe that you'll trace it back and realize the only reason I ever believed is because God did something to me. But the old handwriting was right. I was lost, and I didn't find God. He found me. How did I believe? He made me believe. I was dead. How did I become alive? Dead people can't come alive. He made me alive. And we really believe if we can 
could do that, if we could save ourselves, then we would have every right to look at other people and say, you're just not as smart as me. We would boast and look down upon people because I'm smarter than I figured it out. That's not what Paul concluded. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. I can't believe that God has been gracious to me to save me. But Jesus is talking about a choice here. This choice is for Christians. You were dead and you could never come to Jesus. But once you come to Jesus, guess what we believe? The Holy Spirit makes us alive. We were dead in our trespasses and now we've been made alive. And so we do have the ability to choose, not because of us, but because he's working in us. And this is what some people feel like it's called sanctification growth. Every day we have the opportunity. Now I couldn't make I couldn't see God, but now I can, and he angles me. Paul would say things like this. I struggle with all his energy that so mightily works within me. I mean, I don't know that there is a, a working of God and in us because we're alive. We make decisions as new believers that we are alive. We can seek him. When Jesus says, draw near to me and I draw near to you, he's talking to Christians. He's given us the ability to do something. We're alive. And yet, he's doing it. And Kevin will answer all your questions about that. <laughs> Afterwards, how that works itself out. But here, these two ladies, they're Christians. Martha and Mary. They love each other. Oh, they, love, they love Jesus. Wouldn't like that's what, we, what they all say. And, um, we know that they love Martha and they both uh, have that probably earlier in this, where this is in the history of, the, of what's going on in Jesus' ministry, he's turned towards Jerusalem. It's probably nine months earlier, he's turned, he's headed to Jerusalem to die. It's about six months away. He sent the 72 out. I don't know if you know that, he would tell, send the disciples out and say, go stay with people, they'll take you. Tell them about me. Tell them, talk to them. If they don't, step, go, you know, dust your feet off and leave them. But they probably went here. They have heard of Jesus. They're welcoming him. As a matter of fact, Mary, Martha, and their brother is a famous guy named Lazarus who's raised from the dead. They're going to be an outpost in a place where, where uh, Jesus will spend lots of time. It's recorded in the other Gospels. And he spends time with them. And they love him. It even tells us that Martha welcomes him into their house. Like that word there in the Greek is a word of just great affection and the welcoming words. It wasn't just saying, like, come on in. It was like letting someone in that you knew and you loved. So it's very, very painful. But here's what I like and why I picked this passage today. Those guys are heroes and they're in big circumstances. But guess where Jesus is going to teach about the one thing here? It's just in regular, everyday life. Right in the middle of a family argument. How many of you had those before you came to church this morning? Two sisters, one's mad at the other. Just preparing a meal. Just regular old everyday life. The difficult circumstances usually reveal who we are. But it's in the everyday life. Jesus is so gracious. This passage is written, I think, to help us to understand um, how to make the best decision as a believer. Just a regular old everyday life. And how to make the priority. So, um, that decision, that choice that's more important than others that you made as Christians, and you learn to sit at Jesus' feet. Okay? We're going to, um, and it's a battle for everyday life. It's not wars, it's not just in wars, and it's not just when you're in jail. It's in regular everyday life. We're going to sit 
at Jesus' feet. What does it mean to do that? So here's our outline. What does it mean to sit at Jesus' feet? We'll look at uh, Mary for that. We'll learn from her about that. We'll learn that. Then we'll look answer what, is, what, what makes it difficult to make that choice. Uh, we'll look at Martha, and then we'll see what Jesus, sort of what you can learn from him, what he's teaching about it or saying about it, and his actions and what he says. Um, that's our outline, so let's pray. God, would you help us this morning to um, hear from you? And I pray that in some way that you would just let us all sit in this house, house in the city of Bethany, which was a real place, just a few miles from east of Jerusalem. There was a home. And there were these sisters. And would you help us to be there, in a sense, and see ourselves there? And uh, you would help us to learn what it is that you are, that you are trying to teach us. And what it is you're not trying, but you are teaching us today. In the name of Christ, we pray. So what does it mean to sit at Jesus' feet? Let's just go ahead and answer that question. It was interesting in the connect groups that I'm in when we said that. What does it really mean to know God and sit at his feet? How does it, what does it really look like to know God? I mean, we fumble. I mean, is it just doing? Is it just listening? Is it just um, worshiping? What does it mean to know him? And um, here's Mary. Now listen, we don't know... Uh, much about Mary. She's the one sitting at Jesus' feet. We know from this passage, she's the sister of Martha, uh, which means probably that she's younger because Martha's mentioned first. Now, usually that's the way uh, the Jewish writings goes. And uh, but here's one thing I want to pause and say. Don't think of this, which people have historically done. Don't think of this in light of personality types, okay, of Mary. Don't think, well, she's the, the, the reflective, contemplative type, and Martha's the doer. All right? Don't think of that. that this is, a, this is a one personality type or another. The Bible just doesn't let us know that. Okay? It doesn't. Martha, listen, I'm a pretty laid-back beer and just laid-back person. But I can find myself doing things like Martha all the time. Listen, they both could have been doers. They both could have been just sort of relaxed. It doesn't mean. Don't put that on the passage. There's a choice that's being made here. So we don't know what their personalities are talking but their struggles are the same. So we'll put that there. You can't draw those conclusions. Uh, but what we know, it tells us that she was doing, she's made a choice. Jesus said she chose something, and she's sitting, uh, listening to the words of the Lord seated at his feet. And that's sort of what we know. All right? Um, next. What do we learn? What is, what's going on? What, we, what does it mean to sit at Jesus' feet? Well, I think one thing to notice is that that phrase, to sit your feet, is a posture. In many ways, the phrase that lends itself toward the posture. And in, rabbinic, in ancient times, and even rabbinic, um, sitting at the feet of a rabbi was a posture of humility and submission. So, in order to, what it means to sit at Jesus' feet or to know God, part of what it is a posture is saying, God, I do want to know you. I put myself under you as God. Remember last week we looked at the creation story, and when the garden, uh, when God created Adam and Eve and created Adam in the garden, they put him in a temple. But the posture was that of submission, because God was doing the defining of the parameters, and he was the one speaking, and he was the one telling them, you can't eat of this, and you have to do this, and what to do, and keep the guard. It was a posture that God, they were in submission, Adam and Eve to that. Now they come out under that submission, and think of themselves as God. But to know God is a posture of submission. It has to be. And so she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's what 
uh, anyone at the time would have understood that, and she had to feel posture. So to learn to sit at the feet of Jesus, to know it's a posture of submission. But then also notice that it's relational. Why do we know that? Because Jesus is comparing it to tasks that don't involve people directly, but she's sitting there relationally at Jesus' feet. Now the other thing to notice is that particularly here, it's one-on-one. Now we don't know, it's more than likely or very likely that Jesus and a group of other guys were there with him traveling to make some of the apostles. It doesn't tell us that. That's very likely. But Luke, and this, and this is the only place in the Gospels this little story is, is shown, Luke, uh, we, we seem to know that he, Jesus has drawn the point that one person is sitting with me. Now, that speaks to the idea if you're a follower of Christ, do you know what happens when you become a Christian when you go from death to life? The Holy Spirit dwells with you. Our body is described as a temple of God. So it makes sense that part of what it means to know God is that to is to um, is to individually, you and I are called to individually cultivate the relation with God in this one-on-one. Now, there is the rest of the Bible teaches that don't, because it does in Hebrews, don't forsake assembling together some of the habit of doing. We're individuals with a relationship, a part of a corporate group of people called the body of Christ who also have a relationship with them. And both of those things help each other. But nevertheless, you are individualistic and you're corporately a part of the body of Christ. It's not more one or the other. But here, Jesus highlights that there, there's an individual relationship. So there's something, whether he's said to Jesus is that it's relational in its nature, the same way it was, and it, that's challenging. It's not just knowing, it's not just gathering the facts, it's relational in its nature, and it's one-on-one with Jesus here as a posture of submission. But then notice what it tells us that she was doing. It says that she was listening to his teaching in verse 39. She's listening. Not just gathering the facts, but she is listening to his teaching. Now, at this point in Luke, this is the beginning of Jesus' memory telling to Jerusalem, and we are going to get recorded tons of his teachings on tons of the next chapters through chapter 20. There's lots of teachings of Luke. And there's a lot to learn from Jesus, and a lot to learn from that. It's going to be uh, in, in the book there. We're not studying the book of Luke, but I'm letting you know that this is sort of the inaugural place. And Jesus, we see the first teaching, and the first story that Luke is Jesus is about, which is about that Luke is about to reveal all of his teachings of Jesus. The posture as it goes into it is to sit at the feet of Jesus. Guess what 11.1, the very next verse, is about? The disciples asking to pray. So you can see that, that the idea is that the people need to sit themselves under the teaching of God in a relational one-on-one manner. And it's moving that way towards it. She's listening to teaching. Now, listen, I'm, this is not a stretch, but we know a little bit more about Mary in one of the play, a couple other places. In John 12, six days before the Passover, it tells us, that Jesus is back in this very same house. And Lazarus is there reclining at the table. And it tells us that Martha, that Mary, takes a perfume that's worth a lot of money. And she puts it, takes her hair. And she takes it down. And she begins to wash Jesus' feet perfume. And Judas, who will betray Jesus, says, that's worth so much money. What is she doing? And Jesus says, well, let She's preparing for my burial. 
in my life. Some said that. She was listening to Jesus, right? She may have been the only one who listened close enough to know he was going to die. The disciples didn't get it. They're in the upper room. Right before the ghost. To try for entry, they're praising him because they think he's right in Jerusalem to be king and conquer all the Gentiles and conquer every Rome who's against us. She's listening. And the next time she's around him, she takes perfume and she starts preparing him for burial. She's listening. She loves him. The act of taking your ear down was incredible humility. Women didn't do that. Jews women particularly in public. It's deep affection. It went more than just knowing about it. She listened. She knew it. And then some of the complex, you're like, so is it just some sort of trait, you know, like trance or just some just relationship? No. It's not a, knowing God is not absence of knowledge about him. But it is more relational than that. It, it, think about it as when Brittany comes home and tells me about her work, it's great for me to hear what happened today. And that means a lot to her, for me to learn. And I learn about her, about what happens, how she responded. But to really get to know her would be to sit with her for a little bit longer and say, how are you doing? And what's going on in your heart and how do you move about all this stuff? But I would wait and let it move beyond the facts. Just be with her and see how she's doing. Knowing God is more than facts, but it is learning things that really help me understand about that. So, with that Psalm 27 about David, do you know what he does afterwards? After he says, One thing I ask this is the Lord, seek the Lord. You know what happens in the rest of that, that particular psalm? He says, I'll make melody to the Lord. And my heart says to you, You face the Lord, I, do I seek you? Teach me your ways. It's full. It's robust. He actually praises God. Part of getting to know God is actually to tell him who he is. It's, it's from the word of God that we hear from him. The Bible is God speaking to us. Prayer is us talking to him. It's relational. It's prayer. It's the word. Sometimes it's praise, but it is simply being in the presence of God. And he actually, Paul actually says, I mean, uh, David actually says later, teach me to walk in a level path. So part of the learning is learning as you sit in a relational. I learn, teach me, Rabbi. And we begin, why do you want me to walk in that path? Oh, because you love me. I see that. I'm not just obeying someone who um, is a coach telling me what to do. I'm obeying one who has shown me love to me. Who actually describes himself in that famous book a lot of you have read, Children of Love. The way he describes, Jesus, come to me. Cast your burdens to me. Why? Because I am gentle and lowly and kind. And then Paul, you know what he asked uh, after that Philippians 3, he says, I want to know in him. The thing that he, <coughs> excuse me, the things that he ends up saying after that, listen to this. He says, indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So some of it he realizes suffering. He realizes that part of being before God is suffering. In difficult times, things do bring us before God. That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but from that which through his faith in Christ. Sitting before God is sometimes learning. Part of getting to know him is to see what he's done for him. And what Paul was saying was, I have a righteousness that wasn't mine. 
I was good at trying to earn righteousness, but I have a righteousness that is Christ. It was given to me. He thinks about the cross and the gospel and all that came to him. So if you see, sitting at his feet, it does take knowledge, but that knowledge moves towards a relationship and presence with him. And then he says in verse 10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Paul's like, I want to share with Christ. I want to walk with him. When I walk with him, I realize I'm not a good walker right now, so I'm not going to fall. I'm a duty. But when I walk with him, what he's trying to say is, it's like, I'm walking, I'm sharing. I'm suffering. Jesus is familiar with suffering because he's not God this far off. He's here. I'm rejected when I go to school. He knows what it's like to be rejected. I've I got pain. He knows what pain's like. He walks with me, and I share the suffering that he had. He was persecuted. I'm persecuted. You see that it is a relationship that we share. So much to the idea of sitting in his feet. And so, listen, I didn't put it on the screen because it's not grammatically correct yet. And I won't, but that, I'm trying to give, here's what I think the definition of what it means to sit at Jesus' feet. This is me grasping it. So just listen, okay? It's a choice that there's a priority in the Christian life. And it's, a, it's personal and relationally being connected to God. It's not all of the Christian life, but without it, it's not really true Christianity. So let me just, let me, let me, let me say that. Right before this passage, in, Luke, in this passage, is the famous passage of the Good Samaritan. Very, very important that we serve the Christian. So what we're not saying is that the only thing we do is just have quiet times and be with God. But what we are saying that there is a priority to it, what Jesus will say to Jesus is saying there is, of all the things, there is one that you should put your chips on a little more than the rest of the other things. And it's really hard to do. Because it wasn't wrong for Martha to prepare a for Jesus. The Bible speaks to hospitality. It's just at this moment, it wasn't the right, it was a better choice that could be made. So it's a choice that is a priority in the Christian life. So it's a priority. There is just a few things. Jesus is saying there is something that you can do a little bit more important than the other things that there is to do. And it's personal and relationally being connected to God. It's not all the Christian life, but without it, it's not Christianity. What do I mean by that? The Pharisees obeyed God, but they did not know Him. So you can't have obedience and know nothing about God because you're just ascribing to a workspace idea Earning your salvation, earning that, you can, it's nothing about God, it's not based on relationship. But those who have a relationship with God, they do change and they have works. <coughs> so it's never void of them. It's not all the Christian life, but if without it, it's not Christianity. Just like the garden, there was many tasks that God first made man in the temple and dwelt with him. He was to work and keep the garden. Meaning the temple that he put in there. It consists of learning, listening, praising, silence, the word, and prayer. The goal is relationship, and it travels through knowledge and time spent together. That's how the relationship is built, through knowledge and time spent together. And it always manifests itself with obedience. fell in love with Ruby and changed how I 
say again, though. Yeah. Yeah. So what makes it so difficult? Right, this one be. We have to start with the right choice. That's what you're choosing. What makes it so difficult? This is mine. And what makes it, it, it is difficult. It sounds like you're like, I want it now. <laughs> I want to do that. But it is difficult. Now, let's go to the here and look. Mark was distracted by much serving. That's what it tells us. And Jesus even says, you're troubled. The word that in the Greek that in trouble, the word so rendered is only used, Stacey Roth says here in the New Testament, it means literally to be in tumult, tumult, tumultuous, to live tumultuously. Like she is really getting to a place of frustration. It's really overtaking her in anxiety. It's to be disturbed, just be distracted. First, let's just think about that idea of just being distracted. Just distracted. Would you say we're a distracted culture? All right, I think you would. Few things. I'm going to pump my book. One book I pumped it last week. I'll pump it again. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Comer. That's a good one. Uh, I think most of these quote. I don't know. I think some of this came from his book. I'll do a quote from that. It's a good one. Um, but listen to this. You think we're distracted? But most historians. This is most historians point to 1370 as the turning point in the West, meaning the West, Europe, us, in relationship to time. That year, the first public clock tower was erected in Germany. Before that, time was natural. All right? Before Edison created the light bulb, the average person slept 11 hours a night. The average American works nearly four more weeks per year than he did in 1979. A recent study found that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day, just different ways. Each user is on his or her phone for two and a half hours over 76 sessions. And that's all smartphone users. Another study on millennials put the number twice that. I'm a millennial. Thank goodness. Okay. Here's a great quote from the book. I had it last week. John Comer says, he's, he's quoting another guy here. So this is in the book. It may be the case that Christians are assimilating the culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to deteriorating relationship um, with God, which leads to Christians becoming more, even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to more conformity to a culture of business, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. I think we can identify what it's like to get distracted. She had a lot going on that day. Probably a big thing she was trying to make. She wanted to do the right thing. And so, you notice the passage tells us that there was many things. Jesus says that you're troubled about many things. And there are many things in life we can be doing. But then notice that it says that there's one thing. Now, here I want to pause just for a second. And say this, I think it helps the passage. I've looked at this passage over the years. Some of the original manuscripts have only uh, the have only the phrase um, that she uh, one thing. That's much one of them. that up there. The slide. Yeah, the, the verse forty-one. Most a lot of the manuscripts have, but one thing is necessary. That's what most translators. But there are some of the manuscripts. They're just as old. 
to have this phrase, but a few things are needful, only one. It doesn't change the meaning of the passage, but here's, I like that. Here, here's one thing I just want to point. Jesus admits, at some level, and I think you can draw this conclusion based on his other teachings. He just did this to the Good Samaritan. He's saying there are a few things that are really necessary. You see that? There's many things you could be doing, and there are things that are necessary. It's, it's important to work. God to work. We work in the community. The family's important. There's a family. She served her family, served her friends. I mean, there's a lot of things. There are a few more things that are important. But then he takes it down to one. The one thing. One thing. We've got to remember that the Lord does not mean to say that Martha's occupation was wrong. But that for the time, Mary's active occupation was better than Martha's. The other thing that we learn from Martha, what, what hinders is, one, we just get distracted. But the second thing that makes it hard is that sometimes it's just hard to make decisions between good things and the best thing. Does that make sense? I mean, there are a lot of good things that we should be doing. So that makes the best thing a harder thing to make a decision for. It's a hard choice. But it also, Jesus is trying to say, that, listen, there's a stream that you're going to want to do a few things, but you've got to learn to walk against that stream a little bit and choose the one thing. And so, sitting at Jesus' feet, what we think, what Jesus, what I'm trying to tell you is Jesus is saying that there must be a regular withdrawing in our lives, something sort of rhythm where we are sitting at the foot of Jesus. He took one day out of seven of the work, and he said, this is a Sabbath. He sits it apart for us to make it holy. You see that Jesus would often withdraw and be with, with his Father. There is something that we are to do, and there's many good things, and we're not saying don't do those. Just put your chips and your priority on this one thing. Make sure you don't forsake this. This is the most important. Sit at Jesus' feet. There's so many things you can do in Martha. And don't be dismissive. Things matter. And my kids' games matter to them. That's important. And few things are really even more important than that. But then God is the Jesus. Can you think about that? If Jesus would come to lunch with us and say, Jesus, if you have one thing to tell me, what would it be? Choose what matters. We learned that it's hard. It's, it's hard because we get distracted. It's hard because sometimes we're making decisions between good things and great and the best thing. And then also the other thing is hard is it becomes about ourselves. And we get mad. And we start making the wrong decision. And at some point in this moment of serving Jesus that she wanted to do, Martha wanted to do, she gets mad. And look what she does. She went straight to the Lord. She goes, Dr. Sister, I'm heading right to Jesus. Everybody else in this feet, Jesus. You believe my sister is not helping me? Look what she said. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Look what happens when you don't serve Jesus. You don't have something to We look at that and we go, how many times are things going hard in our life? And we go to God and say, don't feel like you care about me. And then we tell him how people ought to be learning our minds and changing our circumstances. I'm not in the middle of it. I would rather my 
Is he not more gracious than we know? Is he not more kind than we know? Does he, I mean, he just moves towards her. And she's been rough to deal with. So not only is he you're not worthy, then he does love us and he moves towards us and he absorbs all of how bad we are. When we come to him, he's so kind and he's so gracious. And this is being Jesus, inconsistent. Listen, Jesus says, I know I'm the one who made human beings. And I put them in a garden, in a temple, in the Eden, so that they would start their very existence being connected to me. I know what you need. I designed you. He's doing the thing that we need. And he tells her the good portion. Jesus, he said, she's chosen the good portion. Martha, Martha, Mary's chosen the good portion. Listen, there's two meals being served till today. And don't, don't focus on the wrong meal. Eat the portion. Eat the bread of life. Drink from the living water. Choose the right meal today. He wants you and me not to have anything less than the best. It's the best portion. I know it's hard to believe that, but Jesus said is to have me is to have everything. That's what David realized. No matter what happens to my life, you should not fear. My soul, I'm known and loved and pursued. He does, we know better than David knows because we know who Jesus is. He doesn't even know that. We have all the more reason for everything that we're facing to make the choice to make sure that the priority of our life, that our life flows from a connection with the feet of the one who loves us. So here's an application. I hope that you're not walking away with something to do, although there is something to do. But my goal for this morning was to reintroduce you to God who loves you. And you're like, oh, that's what Jesus is like?
Could you help us for a moment to just uh, sing together? In your name we pray. Amen. 